Welcome to Eat Blog Talk, where food bloggers come to get their fill of the latest tips, tricks, and insight into the world of food blogging. If you feel that hunger for information, we'll provide you with the tools you need to add value to your blog, and we'll also ensure you're taking care of yourself because food blogging is a demanding job. Now, please welcome your host, Megan Porta. As food bloggers, we want to accomplish more, more, more when it comes to our food blogging task list while also having plenty of time to spend with our loved ones. And Q4 can be an especially hectic season for all of us. I have created a course that focuses on planning and productivity that will open up time for you to focus on the people and things you love this season. And also to devote more time to food blogging tasks that will bring in revenue This course is a four-week group coaching course that includes accountability as well as community. Head over to eatblogtalk.com forward slash plan with me to get more information and to sign up. You do not want to miss out on this opportunity. You can do so much more than you think you can. And being your most productive self can open up space for so many good things in your life. What's up, food bloggers? Welcome to the Eat Blog Talk podcast made for you, food bloggers who are seeking value for your blogs and your lives. In today's episode, I will be talking to Bethany Smith from foodblogusability.com, and we will be discussing user experience design and food blogging. Bethany helps food bloggers be awesome by taking a deep dive into the hows and whys of communicating and connecting with their followers. She especially focuses on the concepts around user experience design and how to make blogs user-friendly. Bethany has a background in web design, digital content, marketing, and management. User experience design is a relatively new concept for food bloggers to wrap our heads around, so I'm really excited to give you the chance to shed light on this subject today, Bethany. But first, take a couple minutes to give us a fun fact about yourself. Hi, I'm happy to be here. So, fun fact is I worked at Starbucks for five years during grad school. I'm sure a lot of people have that fact, but people seem to find it pretty interesting, so... I'm really good at making lattes, but I can't make coffee at home. So, <laughs> oh, funny! <laughs> you need all the fancy equipment at Starbucks. It's just like different proportions, right? Because you're making like a ton of coffee, and I always put either like too much water, too much coffee in at home, and I don't know. I let my That's husband funny. do it because mine never tastes very good. <laughs> yes, yours is on a Starbucks scale, so you're. <laughs> You're not on the home caliber. Oh, that's fun. I have never worked in a coffee shop, but I've always dreamed of it because it's always smells so good in there. And I just love coffee anyway, but just kind of the hum of people and chatting. It's kind of a good vibe. Yeah. I mean, you tend to smell like coffee all the time, but I mean, for the most part, it was pretty fun. I mean, there's some craziness during the really busy hours, but yeah. Oh, sure. I bet. That's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. Now, moving on to the reason you're here today, not to talk about coffee, but to talk about user experience design or UX design, as we sometimes hear written. As the number of food bloggers increases, platforms like Google, who help to get our recipes out into the world, 
are defining for us more and more what we need to do to be able to rank higher. And what we are seeing with more clarity after every algorithm change is that it comes down to a few basic things. So one, creating consistent quality content. And number two, creating that content with the user in mind. Hence the creation of the phrase, user experience design. So to start, Bethany, tell us a little bit about your journey and how UX design got onto your radar. Well, about five years ago, I had the opportunity to start my own business. I actually lost my job and was on unemployment. I went to the unemployment office and filled out all these tests. And then the computer was basically like, people with your skills don't get hired. I'm like, Great. Like I have a marketing degree, (laughs) management degree, like all this stuff and experience. So they took me back and they're like, well, we have these other programs for you. Um, And one they suggested was starting my own business. So I could be on unemployment when um, I started my own business. So instead of looking for work, I had to do like a business plan. And there were a few little courses and things to take. So that's kind of the start of my, well, not the start, because I had experience doing web design and digital content and all of that. But as far as my kind of freelancing and my own business, that's how it ended up starting. So the past several years, I've been focusing on web design and also doing some VA type of work too, just helping people with their digital content and organizations and things. So I've also had two kids in the past four years. (laughs) So it's been pretty part-time and it was a great opportunity. Like, I mean, I know so many food bloggers have young kids at home too. So anyway, I've been really focused more on the web design aspect of it, but I started about a year ago working with some food bloggers on different projects. And I just really saw a need in this market for people to come in that have more of a technical background and also talking about the user experience. Because as a web designer, I mean, it's very prominent now in that field that hopefully everybody is really aware of a lot of those concepts. They're kind of merged as one thing, I would like to think. So yeah, so as far as working with the food bloggers and just kind of figuring out what I want to focus on. And yeah, so I... That's kind of my background and what led me up to doing this. Today, yeah. I love that you saw that food bloggers were needing this because so true. And I feel like the number of food bloggers just grows like exponentially every day. There's so many and there's such a hunger for like a strategy or, you know, information that can help them to achieve success, whatever that means for them. So I love that you kind of saw that and you just took it and were able to provide valuable information that you've learned in your past. And whatever those tests that were telling you that you couldn't find a job or whatever, you couldn't be placed anywhere. That's ridiculous because there's always a way to take things that you know and things that you've learned and kind of put it together. So I love that you did that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing. A lot of food bloggers, right, end up in an, in a situation where a normal nine to five isn't going to work for them for whatever reason. And so, you know, so I mean, it's the same route with me. Like that wasn't, and with having young kids, it wasn't working either. So, absolutely. And you're providing such value. And we'll get into this later. But you did a mini audit for my site, and like just that was like 
really eye-opening and valuable to me. So we can talk about that in a little bit. But for now, talk to us about some of the most important parts of our blogs and posts that we should be focusing on when we keep the user experience in mind. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, so a little bit about what the user experience is. I think a lot of people hear that term and think, oh yeah, I care about my user, reader, follower, whatever term you're using for it, but don't really realize it's actually this whole field of study. Like people can go to college and get degrees in it and there's all these metrics and ways to measure it and all these best practices around it. So it's actually a pretty technical field. So one thing I'd say for food bloggers is there's a lot of focus around SEO, right? So you just want to get people to your site, right? Basically, that's getting people there. Yeah. That's the goal. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Especially that's, you know, a lot of the way people monetize it. But the user experience takes into a much more holistic view, which I think actually should relieve a lot of pressure because it's not just about getting people there and these focuses on trying to like game the Google algorithm and stuff. So one of the metrics I use is actually one that Google developed, not so much for SEO, but just as product designers. And it's called HEART, which that stands for happiness, engagement, adoption, retention, and task completion. So looking at all of those, so it's really about how the user comes in and the full experience of their site. So do they enjoy your blog? Do they engage with it? Do you retain them? Do you keep them coming back? And can they accomplish what they came there to do? So that's kind of the overarching principles there. So I like that you explain that because I think it's important to point out that user experience does go beyond just SEO there's something deeper than SEO. There's like a root cause or a root reason why you are wanting people on your site and what you need to do to nurture them. Yeah. I mean, I'd say SEO is just a small part of the whole user experience, right? So it'd fall under the adoption of the the heart framework I just talked about. So how do you get people to your site, right? There's so many other things. And I think especially because most food bloggers have advertising and that's kind of, you know, you have to get certain amount of sessions or whatever to even get on larger ad networks like Mediavine or AdThrive. And so it's just this real focus has developed on just the SEO part, just getting people there. And like everything else has been kind of forgotten about. Like, I mean, not everybody, like clearly people still care about the people who are reading and try to give a good experience, but the focus has really shifted to that one specific thing, but there's just so much more, you know, if you could retain more of the people that come there, like that's also a good way to increase your views. Absolutely. That's a really good way to look at it, whether you're talking about SEO or Pinterest, because Pinterest is a huge traffic driver too, more so in the past, I think. But Either way, like if we could retain even a small percentage of all of the eyeballs that have come to our sites from those two places, that would be massive. So looking at the underlying reason, the user experience is super important. Yeah, I mean, clearly it depends on how many views you get, but just a one or two percent increase on retention, I mean, could be huge numbers, right? So then you're not spinning your wheels like what? the algorithm changed, Pinterest changed, like whatever changed. And 
And these are long-term strategies where you're not always feeling like you have to change and say, what's working for SEO today? Like these are really principles that are based in, a lot of it's based in psychology, like consumer psychology and how people interact with websites and how people buy things and, you know, what colors they respond to well Mm -hmm. and all that type of stuff. That's really interesting too, that it's rooted in psychology. (laughs) That's so cool. Oh, like I, so I actually started working in digital content in the late nineties. <laughs> so it was like the wild, wild west back nice. then. Nobody knew. Everybody was like, <laughs> we don't know how people are going to use websites. We don't know where to put the logo. We don't know how to make links work. Like how are people going to know it's a link? How are people going to know what to do. So since I was working in it back then, it's just really interesting to see the principles that have carried over. And there are so many things that are still true today that were true back then. I mean, for instance, with the logo, they figured out that the top, so most people have in the top left, I don't really know my left from right very well. (laughs) The top left or the center, (laughs) and that's because of how your eye scans the page. So you start in the top left because that's the way we read. They figured out that that's the best place to have your logo to kind of, you know, people know what site they're on and then they go through the rest of it. So that's why it's standardized that way because of that. Oh, what else? Do you have any other nuggets? There are a couple ways that people typically look through your site and they often don't, well, they rarely actually read everything. So that's one reason using like bullet points and headings is important. So that's why... For SEO, you get told, do this for SEO, right? Like have bullet points, have whatever, and maybe that makes it more reader friendly. But this is why it's all the user experience. Because that's all Google is trying to do is provide a good user experience to their users, right? Or Pinterest, right? Whoever's searching, like the better the user experience is on your website. But so the way you read through is kind of like you're reading a book, but you just skim. So there's like an F pattern and... Oh, I forget the other one. There's two or three that are really common about how your eyes go throughout the site. And so that's the way blogs are set up. I mean, most people don't realize it because templates are just set up that way. It's become so standardized. Like I said, the logo in the top left and then the kind of major header on most web pages are. And all of that is just based on how people naturally read. Like how your eye flows through a page. Yeah. And so it's... A lot of it goes to just how we read because we read left from right, right? So in cultures that read right from left, some of this is a little different. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. So to kind of go along with that, what are some main things that we should be focusing on as food bloggers to keep this whole user experience in mind? Yeah, I think that really just stepping into the user experience first. So I think it's kind of a two-step process, right? I think most food bloggers or anybody who's creating content is, if you've had any success, you're good at kind of knowing what your audience wants, right? Like right now it's the fall, so people want pumpkin recipes or whatever, right? But going that extra step and really thinking, well, how are they going to experience using this recipe or using my blog? Are there pop-ups that are blocking everything? Are there colors that you can't see very well? So just overall thinking about that. Um, So I guess specifically, 
I just wrote a post on this. So the mobile experience. So for most food bloggers, the traffic you get is probably 75% or more using a smartphone or some sort of mobile device, probably even higher for a lot of people. And typically we create, if we're writing a blog or editing photos, we're doing that on a laptop or desktop, right? And don't even often look at how things look on a mobile device. So that's something I see happening a lot is that people don't check that. You add new things, you add a new widget or social sharing things or a new pop-up and you never even test it on your phone. There's also tools online that you can test easily what it looks like on mobile. So I'd say that's a really major one. And then just making sure that pop-ups aren't blocking all of your content, that things are easy to find so that you have a search bar that you can find both on your desktop and on mobile, because sometimes the way they're placed in the menu bar on a desktop, it's really hard to find on mobile. I mean, all sorts of things like that, like just really how when somebody gets to your site, can they have a good experience and accomplish what they want to accomplish? So, Right. Do they want to click away right away? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a fan of the jump to recipe button. You know, some people aren't, but, you know, if people are coming there for the recipe, making sure that that is accessible and easy for them to find and see. So they're not getting frustrated trying to access it. Yeah. Yes. Totally hear you there. The mobile friendly recommendation is great because I think we all do just kind of assume that since we are posting on our desktops that everyone's going to see it on our desktops. But when I started digging into my analytics, I was finding that my numbers were extraordinary as far as like who was coming from mobile. Really, really high number of people. So then I started kind of putting the focus there. And then you, Bethany, pointed out a few things like my search bar, I don't think is anywhere to be seen on mobile. So that's something that I need to think about. But I love that you look at those little things. What are people coming and looking for right away that's going to make them either stay or click away? The pop-ups is a huge one. And that is something that I've struggled with because I love having the newsletter pop-up or the email sign up pop up, but I just can't seem to find one that is like not just intrusive on a mobile device. So that's been a struggle for me. And then I was going to ask you what you thought about creating avatars, because this has been really helpful for me to keep the user in mind is a few years ago, I created an avatar for exactly who my user is. I named her. I know what her struggles are. I know I can picture her when I write each post. What specifically is my avatar going to want to know about my cherry cheesecake or my blog in general if they come from, you know, just a random Google search? Is she going to want to know how long cheesecake stays fresh in the fridge, etc.? So do you agree that it is good for every food blogger to create an avatar? Oh, yeah. I think that's really important. So avatar and your target audience, you know, those are very similar things. So knowing all of that. And I think what happens sometimes is people think, well, I want everybody to read my recipes. And so I don't want to be that specific. But there is this backwards correlation where the more specific you are, you actually do better at reaching other people also. Like, I know it sounds really backwards, but I think it's because you're just creating really good content for that specific person and other people who want to access it, that's fine. But you just need to know who that person is and really focus 
on that. And I think it's always easier to create if you kind of have a specific person in mind, right? Because otherwise you start getting all these ideas and you're like, maybe this will work, maybe that will work. <laughs> and, you know, not everything works. So that same concept applies to food blogging in general. I think when we choose a niche, because we think, well, nobody is going to want to come to me if I have such a niche food blog. But like you said, it's super counterintuitive, but it actually does the opposite. So if you niche down, you're actually going to get more traction. And it doesn't, like on paper, that really doesn't make any sense. But that is actually what happens. And I think that you're right by saying that that is kind of applies to just getting general people to your site as well. Yeah, it's important. So... Yeah, definitely. I love the metric that you shared, the HEART acronym. I had not heard that. So that comes from Google, you said? Yeah, so it was one of their, I think, product development teams. So it's not focused specifically around SEO or something like that. But yeah, they were trying to figure out how to measure the user experience. And so it gives you this framework because it is kind of hard to figure out what like okay I need to care about that but I don't have like you need to be able to measure things right so yeah definitely I like that the two acronyms that we kind of have now for Google standards are EAT and H-E-A-R-T so eat and heart (laughs) I love it yeah well and Google actually recently released I haven't heard people talking about this much but there is this article they posted on I think it was like to Google webmasters or something but talking about SEO and what you need to create for that. But it was just questions to, as a content creator, questions to ask yourself. And it's just all these questions about user experience. Like, can the one I just wrote about was a mobile friendly one? Is your site mobile friendly? Do you have titles that make sense? Do you have content that isn't blocked by ads? Do you have, and, you know, it's like, this is what we're looking for. We're not looking for these technical things, we're just looking for this overall user experience or human experience. It's kind of switching to be called human experience now. So, Yeah, I love that. Asking ourselves those questions are really important. So I think it's great that people like you are out there kind of helping us to see what those questions are and to understand that it's not all about us. It's about the user. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you did like a little mini audit for me. And I told you before mm-hmm. our interview that I was mildly panicked looking through it because <laughs> there's so much to improve on. I think anytime anyone gets an audit of any kind back, you're like, ah, <laughs> what? Well, and I also was kind of like, here it is. Like you hadn't really asked for it. So yeah, no, <laughs> but I opened it. I was like, whoa, that's so almost like I wasn't supposed to see it. Like I closed it and then I sat or I, you know, I had to drive somewhere. So I, you know, thought about it for an hour and then reopened it and it was totally easy to digest. It was like really well written and you just had super recommendations that I never would have thought of. For example, check the font of your body copy. Is it too light? Because mine is a really light gray and maybe not everyone can see that light of a gray color and maybe, you know, like I always see people like squinting at their phones anyway. So <laughs> why make it even harder? But honestly, that's not something I would have thought about. So you had such amazing, just great little gems in there that I took away and I'm going to for sure work on. But 
I just really appreciate that. So are there other little things like that that people might not think of that they can maybe put on their radar? So you were talking about the font color. That's a big one. Yes. And size too. You mentioned font size. I'm hearing more people talk about the size, but that is important. So 16 pixels is usually the minimum, like for your main text to be seen well on mobile, but you can go higher. Usually I design a little bit higher than that. So it depends on the fonts you're using. I think that was one on yours too. One of the actual typefaces or fonts that you used was really thin compared to your main body text. So it was a headline that was really thin, even though the font size was much larger, it almost looks smaller because of how thin it is compared to how thick the main body text is. So just, <laughs> I know it sounds really kind of like picky, but some of it can make a huge impact and it's not really that hard to change it, right? Like you can just switch it around. A minute of your life. <laughs> yeah, with the color. So that, I mean, that's one thing that's actually somewhat standardized is when you're talking about accessibility, so people, you know, that can't see well, there's actually a set contrast ratio. And you can Google this and find a color tester, really, that will say if it's on a white background and you use this color font, what's the contrast ratio and can people see it? Yeah, that's a great recommendation. I would never have thought to do that. Yeah, so it's especially sites like government sites and sites that are bigger because there's laws around accessibility and that you have to make your site accessible. So this is something that they really have to focus on or there's penalties or they could even potentially be sued for not making your site easy for people with all sorts of needs, right? Yeah, right. That makes sense. So what about optimizing recipe cards? What are your recommendations for those? So I think that it's good if they stand out more. So some people just have where it doesn't differentiate very much from the rest of their text, which just makes it hard for people to find. So the majority of people are going there to find your recipe. This is kind of the tension, right? Food bloggers are like, I need to write all of this stuff. And people coming from Pinterest or Google are like, but I just want the recipe. So I mean, just make it as easy as possible for people to find it, which would be making it a different color, making it really readable, just making it stand out in some sort of way. Yeah, that's great too. And I think that we all yeah. can use templates. We're like, this is fine. This should be good. But really, I mean, like we talked about earlier, just stepping back and looking at it from a user perspective, is it really going to stand out? Especially if you don't have that jump to a uh, recipe card yeah. button, then people are scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And I do that where I'm like, okay, where is this recipe? And then it's just like white background. It looks like it's part of the text. So then I'm like, is that it yeah. or not? So having it kind of jump out at you a little bit is really helpful, I think. You gave me a really, really great recommendation in the mini audit that you did. This is something that I would never in my life have thought to do, but I love this. You recommended linking the name in the recipe card, so where it says author Megan Porta, to the about page. Yeah, actually, I think I've heard that around recently. I don't want to take full credit for that because I've kind of picked up that. Like, just I think it goes back to kind of claiming your authority about things, right? And so on your page, people can, you know, see your about. But 
the user experience part, why I recommended that too, is because if you're on mobile, the sidebar, almost everybody on their blog has a sidebar with the bio. And if you're on desktop, you see that right away. But if you're on mobile, it's pushed to the bottom. So people don't know anything about your site. They don't know who you are. So often the author tag, right, is at the very top. So if that's linked, if people want to know more about you, they can click that right away instead of having to scroll all the way down. Mm, I love it. I just thought that was awesome. Thinking about mobile specifically. Yeah, because if you think about it, our face that pops up right away on desktop is nowhere to be seen unless you scroll and scroll and scroll on mobile. Yes, I love it. So I love the perspective that we should not only not write for ourselves, but also that we should not be writing for Google. There's something so much more important to think about with this whole user experience design. Give us some practical tips for keeping the user in mind that don't have anything to do with SEO and beyond what we've already talked about. So aspects of our blogs more related to design. So I think it's hard because many of the tips you get from Google or you hear are good for SEO are user experience things, right? Breaking up your paragraphs so they're not long paragraphs, using bullet points, using headers, all of that is to make it easy for the reader to use. But we just lose focus of why we're doing it. We think it's for SEO, right? So like, I just wish people would kind of not even know about SEO, really. (laughs) You know, like there's some technical things you still need to do, but more and more it's just pushing to be this user experience or human experience because the algorithm is getting so much better at being human-like And over the next, say, 10 years, I mean, you think about things you were doing for SEO 10 years ago compared to now and 10 years from now, it will be very similar to just how the user is experiencing your site. So I know those weren't super specific, but I think it's just like this mental shift and the more you can shift away from thinking, I need to do this for SEO to I need to do this for my reader, it will just change your perspective and you'll start making some different decisions. Oh, I like that. I like the term you've used a few times, a human experience. So we take it beyond user experience. Now we're humanizing it. So it's a human experience. There's a human there. And if we just put that first, we kind of start to lose those terms like SEO and the things that kind of derail us at times, I feel like, because we're like, get so super focused on that term and trying to like fit in to everything that it requires that we lose focus on the human experience. So I like that. Well, yeah. And it's like this box, right? If you have Yoast or you have whatever, and they have all these things and you need to get the green smiley face. And it's like some of that stuff doesn't, I mean, you can still have a post that does really well in SEO and is really great for your user that's not always getting all of those things, right? And so you just have to look at it and say, what is it telling me to do? Like, why is this not working? Like, you just need to take some of that with a grain of salt and be like, if I'm still producing good content and I know why I'm doing it and it works well for my reader, I know it works well for my reader, then it'll work well for your reader and it'll do well, you know? So maybe ignoring some of the recommendations you get from Yoast or other, you know, like SEMrush, I know they give recommendations as well. And some of them, they just seem kind of ridiculous. Like I just wrote a post for, I think it was like four can margaritas. It's not a typical margarita that I think people are searching for. And 
it came up with a word count that I was supposed to produce on four canned margaritas and it was like 2,200 words. And I was like, are you kidding me? What am I going to say for 2,200 words? Is someone that is looking for four canned margaritas really going to want to come to my site and read that much? So I kind of had to just say like, no, (laughs) not going to do that. Thank you for the recommendation. So just being a little bit realistic about it. Just ignore some of that. Ignoring it. I mean, I think it's helpful to have there so you kind of know and go at it with knowing kind of why you're doing it. Like you were like, I just can't write that much. And my avatar, my reader, whatever, like they're not going to want that much. I mean, because these are just computer systems telling you they don't know more than you, right? Like Yoast or SEM Rush, like they, you're the one actually creating the content for your reader. I mean, I think it's good to be aware of that stuff, but yeah, you don't, it's hard because, you know, you really want it. Like you really want to achieve all these things, but it's not nearly as important as they make it feel like sometimes. Yeah. I think just kind of relying on your intuition a little bit too, like what you just said, you know, really, is somebody going to want to come to my site about a margarita recipe and read through this? No. And just kind of listening to yourself. And I think that relates to the whole user experience too, because we can't always rely on what computers and the technical sides are telling us. We have to rely a little bit at least on what our intuition is saying about these blogs that we've spent years creating and that we've put our hearts into. And we've spent years getting to know who our user is. So we have to rely on that a little bit too, because we're human. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing about if if you're a blogger and you spend a little bit of time learning about user experience and some of the actual techniques, because like I said, it's just the psychology. And once you know some of those principles, then you can make those decisions much better. You can say, I know that this is not how A, B, and C is going to work, right? And you can have more confidence in it. So one of the books that is really good, it's based kind of around web design, but I think it's really good for bloggers too, is called Don't Make Me Think. And it's by Steve Krug. That's K-R-U-G, his last name, Don't Make Me Think. And it just really talks about the whole kind of user experience of creating a website and things you should and shouldn't do. And Don't Make Me Think is the title because people don't want to think, right? They don't want to work hard to find a recipe or the recipe card. They just want to skim through and see if this is relevant to me. And if it's hard to use, people are either going to get frustrated or they're going to leave, right? Yeah. I've not heard of that book. I will definitely check it out. But it's interesting as you're talking, I was thinking what a contrast there is between user experience as far as like someone coming to your website and getting frustrated and just like give me the recipe already, you know, like that. And then also all of the things that Google wants us to put in the recipe within the post. So like questions about how to freeze your cheesecake, how to refrigerate it, how to store it, blah, blah, blah. What if somebody just wants the recipe? So how do we like balance that? Because, and how do we know? I'm sure there are plenty of people that want to come to my cheesecake recipe just to get the recipe and then others want the other information. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a difficult question that food bloggers are really struggling through right now. So I do think, like I said, the jump to recipe is really helpful for that. I don't think, I mean, you said, oh, Google wants us to 
add these questions in or do these things. Like Google wants you to deliver the best experience for the reader, right? And so if answering those questions in your particular post is the best experience for them, um, that's great, but maybe it isn't. So, I mean, one of the things I've been seeing lately is uh, people do question research, right? And then like maybe the question is only sort of applicable to the post. And so as a user, when I'm reading this, I'm like, well, I see how that sort of relates, but that's definitely not my question about this chicken recipe, right? Like, I don't need to know. I'm trying to think of a good example. Like maybe along the lines of a side dish that goes with chicken or something. Yeah, it's kind of like, well, I don't really need to know that. Like, it's not that applicable to this recipe. And I cook chicken all the time. I already know what side dishes go with it. But yeah, like that's the type of thing or just picking out, say it's a dish that has several ingredients and I've seen people pick out just kind of one ingredient and say, what goes along with this ingredient or what else can you make with this ingredient? And it's like, well, that's not even really what the recipe is about. Yeah, I'm sure that some people would find value in that, like how to pick an avocado from the grocery store. I put that in some of my posts that have avocados because a lot of people don't know how to pick a good avocado or like how to ripen one or, you know, things like that. But I think that the issue comes when people see a word count number, like I need to reach this certain word count. And so what's better, not reaching the word count or just putting some of those unnecessary questions in? Yeah, I mean, not reaching the word count. I mean, Google's also said that word count isn't really a huge thing. Like, it's more about if you are answering everything that needs to be done. I mean, the thing is, Google's not just for food bloggers, right? So a lot of this advice that they're giving is for any blog or any content that's out there. So when they're talking about word count, for instance, articles that I'm writing on my site, most of them probably do need a higher word count because I'm actually explaining a concept or principle or whatever, right? But if it's a food blog where the main thing you're often doing, not always, is having a recipe, you can accomplish the goal of having a recipe and talking about that recipe potentially with not a very high word count, right? So it's more about what do you need to accomplish the goal of your post and what are users going to want, like really want when they come there. So kind of back to your other question about some of the users come for just the recipe and some come for other things. I mean, I think that if you're getting people from Google and Pinterest, they're almost always coming for the recipe and maybe they do want a few other tips, but they don't want a whole long story about it. If you have people from your social channels and you've built up a relationship, they may often want more of a story and more insight about you because they feel like they already know you. So they're going there for kind of this different type of experience. So I think you just have to kind of balance for yourself where you want to focus and what you want your blog to be about. And I think also knowing your strengths because some people are really good at writing and really enjoy that. Some people don't and they want to focus more on video and photography. And so just playing to what your strengths are too is a really good idea. I think that is really great advice. And I loved what you said a little bit ago about, you know, knowing who is coming to your site. If someone's coming from Google or Pinterest for the first time, most likely they're just going to want to jump to your recipe. But if you've gained a following and people who really 
want to come back and who you've nurtured a little bit, then yeah, they're probably going to trust your recipes and come back again and again. And then they're probably going to start reading through your posts and reading your tips. So that's really great advice to just really get to know who is coming from where and how often and why and basing it on that, basing your content creation on that. Well, they think if people focus more, if bloggers focus a little bit more on the retention part too, then it would kind of create that, right? So, I mean, that can be done a variety of ways, but building an email list is a really good way to do that, which I know people are all like all in different stages of building email lists. So, and just getting people to your social channels. I mean, that's one thing I'd say to about a blog is know what you want the person to do next. Okay. So they're there to make the recipe, but often there's several like calls to action, right? So there's like sign up for my email, follow me on, and then you list 15 different places. If you made this recipe, do this, pin this, like the more you can focus on just driving them to one or two things. So be like, I'm just going to focus on getting email people. And that's more or less what I'm going to talk about, right? I'll still have links to my social, but I'm not going to ask them to do anything on it. I'm not going to be promoting that a lot. Or you could say, I'm really big on Instagram. I'm going to really promote everybody going there. And so that's what you do. But the more focused you can get, like the more likely people are then going to take that step instead of being overwhelmed by so many different options. Yeah, because I see pop-out boxes all the time, like follow me on Instagram, follow me on Facebook, (laughs) join my newsletter, like which one do you pick? So I love that. Just pick one. What is your forte and kind of go with that and invite people in? Yeah, because people just get overwhelmed with the choices and, you know, the more you can just give them one choice. And I think email is really good because people like to kind of stay in what they're doing, if that makes sense. So if you link to Instagram, then it'll open your Instagram app and then you're in a whole different thing, right? You were like on a web page, and maybe you wanted to go back and research more recipes. And if you click on Instagram, you're now on Instagram and then you have to figure out how to get back. You know, like it feels very kind of confusing. So I know I often am like, well, I don't want to open Instagram right now. I don't want to open Facebook, so I won't do it. So, I mean, that's one reason I think email is easy because it'll just keep you there and you can just submit it. And there's a lot of reasons email's good, but I think people are really likely on your webpage more so than to click to a social app to do your email, sign up for your email. Focusing on retention is kind of the bottom line here, like doing things that allow you to keep those people who are coming to your website and then just really getting to know them so that they keep coming back and then feeding them the things that they want. Yeah. I mean, most people with a food blog that are listening to this, probably doing it for a business, right? And so you also have to find a way to monetize it. And so I know some of this user experience things, if we start talking about, say, ads and how they do not add to the user experience, it's like, well, how do I make my money, right? But the retention part is really how you build this audience, you retain them, and then you can sell them other things or whatever you decide to do, right? But I think that's kind of the key that is missing. Like, it's not always about advertising. It's not always about word count on SEO. There's other ways to monetize your blog. 
So, Bethany, you are showing me today that there are certain things that are so ingrained in food bloggers' minds. I mean, like, I know in my mind, I know that everything that you're saying is true because it just makes sense. But I just want to go back to all these things. Like, we've been taught so many times over and over over the years that, you know, like all the things that I keep bringing up today. And then you're kind of bringing me back down like, okay, that's not what you should be thinking about. So I love that, that you're kind of like, I don't know, you are just bringing us back to what we should be thinking about the human experience, focusing on retention, those sorts of things. And it's just yeah counterintuitive for us food bloggers to get in that mindset because it's hard for us to get in that mindset because it's like, we have lived and breathed this stuff for many years. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a mindset change. And I mean, like I said, I've been around digital content for 20 plus years. And so, I mean, I think that's one thing that's helpful. I know you've been doing it for a while, so you've seen a lot of changes too. But just being able to see all these changes that take place and then kind of projecting out to where it will be. But yeah, I mean, it's hard for me too. Like, I think one of the things with SEO and even advertising is it's very immediate and it's something that you can measure or there's tools like Yoast and SEMrush that like measure these things for you. So you get this automatic sense of I'm doing it right, right? Like, but it's like you're doing that one little part of it, right? You know, if you get the green happy face or whatever you're getting in the overall picture, it's just a really small part of it. So yeah, I think just shifting that. And I feel like it's really freeing. Like I talked to several food bloggers that are like, I'm not getting enough views. I'm not getting enough sessions to get on these ad networks. And And it's like, well, figure out some other way to monetize or, you know, like that shouldn't be just your goal is to get 25,000 sessions a month, right? Like, I totally understand why that gets in people's brains. And it's like, it's a goal, like, it's easy to see, right? These other things aren't goals that are as easy to actually see. Right? They're not as measurable. Yeah, well, I appreciate your perspective. And I think that a lot of food bloggers will agree with me that it's kind of hard to live in your perspective, the way that you're seeing things, but it's good. It's especially if you've been doing this for five or more years, it's just been ingrained. Like every single conference we go to, everything we do has been up to this point more focused on like, yeah, like if you want to get on an ad network, you need to get to this level. You need to have more followers on Instagram, etc. So it's a huge number focus game. But now this whole user experience design is coming to life and it's like the root of everything that we need to be focusing on. And I like it. I liked that you called it freeing or did you call it freeing or refreshing? Yeah, I think freeing. I mean, because it just frees you from some of this like... I have to get my word count in. Like in college, I always have problems doing that. I'm like, because <laughs> I'm trained more as a like business and journalism writer, which is really short. I'm like, I can't meet whatever like pages you're telling me. I have nothing else to say, right? So like, don't just add stuff in for the sake of word count. I've seen blogs that do well that don't have high word counts. And also if you start listening now, I think one of the things is, when you don't know a term, you just kind of gloss over it. So now that you've heard about user 
experience or human experience or whatever people are calling it, you'll probably start hearing it more. And within the SEO market or trainers or whatever, like they do talk about this a lot. I think people just kind of gloss over it and didn't realize everything that it entails. Because I mean, they'll say this is a huge thing for SEO and just like human signals and all of this stuff. So you're right. They do. I mean, I've been to conferences recently and everyone talks about user experience within the past, what, year-ish? But we're so trained, I think, to focus on the measurable things that we kind of forget that, unfortunately. But the more that we hear it, and I do think that it'll become a much more popular term coming up very soon now. So I think that it'll be on our radar a lot more. So I appreciate you just sharing everything you know about it. Yeah, it's been great. Well, and I think the heart, you know, I was talking about that heart framework. I mean, that's a way to measure it. So it gives you some, you know, like some way to kind of know what's going on, yeah, good even point. though it's not as yeah, tangible. <laughs> you know, it's not quite as measurable as right. some of these other things. But Well, it's not a number to measure, but yeah, I like that. So before we say goodbye, are there any tools that we can utilize that will help make the process of improving user experience easier? So I mentioned that book, Don't Make Me Think by Steve Krug. Krug, I'm not sure. That is really good. So like I mentioned with the colors, if you just Google like color contrast accessibility, there's these tools where you can plug in what your font color is and what the background is. And it'll tell you the contrast and whether you'll get a green light if it's okay or whatever. So I think that's a really good tool. And that's a really simple fix that a lot of people can do. And then there are several ways you can check to see what your site looks like on mobile. So there's a website called Responsinator and you can just plug in your URL and it'll tell you. So that's one way. But also, I don't know how many food bloggers know you can do this, but if you're using Chrome and you right click, you can inspect and it goes into the developer tools. And then in there, you can easily view your site in different size screens. So you can view it on mobile. You can view it on different laptop sizes. So I think that's a really good tool, too. That's great. So can I ask you, what do you offer as far as audits? And I know you do mini audits, too. What do you have through your business that can help food bloggers out? Yeah, so I recently started writing a blog. So that's at foodblogusability.com. So there's a lot of good resources there and just articles on these topics. And then I do offer a site audit around the user experience. And it really looks at that framework that we talked about, the heart framework from Google and a few other things. So that, yeah, I just go through your site and kind of measure all these things. I'll do heat maps. Like I use Hotjar. And so we'll have heat maps and get user feedback and I'll analyze all of that for you and then condense it into um, kind of action steps and what I think are the most important steps for you to do. So I have that site on it. And then so those are kind of the main things I'm doing right now. I'm also you know, if you're interested in this, just contact me because I will work with food bloggers on kind of a longish term basis, just on analyzing some of this and coming up with strategies and then also making the changes that they want on their site. So 
That's awesome. Thanks, Bethany. And I will have all of that information for any listeners who are interested on your show notes page, which I will get to in a bit. But before we say goodbye, is there anything we've missed that you absolutely wanted to touch on regarding UX design? I think we covered most of that, but I do want to just encourage people that feel like they are not meeting whatever goals, like maybe you don't have the sessions you need to get on ad network, or you don't have enough followers, enough in quotes, followers on Instagram or wherever, right? Like I've run across so many people that are doing a really good job, but just for whatever reason, they're not meeting those numbers. And it's often not anything you're doing, right? Like could just be that your recipes aren't ranking as high because other people have been on longer, right? I mean, that's a huge factor in Google, how long your post has been up. And there's just so many factors to it. So I just want to encourage people to just start building your community and think of ways you can, because a lot of times it goes back to monetization, right? So just think of other ways besides ads or whatever you're looking at to monetize. And I mean, you don't need... This is the other thing too. You don't need a lot of people to keep your business successful, right? So that might be a good project for some people is to sit down and think like how many actual people say I'm selling an ebook or something? How many actual people do I need coming to my site to make this profitable? And it's not going to be 20,000 sessions, right? Like if you build your community, you can make it profitable with far less than that. So My point is like, just don't stress if you're not meeting some of these metrics yet or ever or whatever, because they're not the end all and be all of everything. I think that's kind of the message of this whole talk and the whole point of user experience design. So I like that you ended with that. Don't focus on the numbers, focus on the human experience, focus on retention and making sure that those people who are coming to your site or to your social platform are the people that you want, the right people. I mean, that's really key. Yeah. Great way to end. Well, Bethany, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day for this chat. I really appreciate it. And I know that food bloggers are going to appreciate it as well and find immense value in your words. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Bethany has a list of favorite resources relating to user experience design and how this topic relates to food blogging. These can be found on her show notes page at eatblogtalk.com forward slash Bethany Smith. Bethany, tell my listeners the best place to find you online. So my blog is foodblogusability.com and then on Instagram also, which is Instagram backslash Kadia Marketing because that's like my web design business that I already had. So it's Kadia Marketing on my social channels. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Bethany. And thank you for listening today, food bloggers. I will see you next time. We're glad you could join us on this episode of Eat Blog Talk. For more resources based on today's discussion, as well as show notes and an opportunity to be on a future episode of the show, be sure to head to eatblogtalk.com. If you feel that hunger for information, we'll be here to feed you on Eat Blog Talk.